Blog Talk Radio. case involving a missing guitar propels investigator Valerie Sloan into a violent world where more than the axe is at stake. Her heritage also becomes a focal point when she goes up against Japanese organized crime. Sandy Nork has brought us Special Risk, the first of a series, an author and a librarian. She joins us from New Cumberland, PA. I'm your host, Tori Gates, also the author of Searching for Roy Buchanan, and I am very happy to bring somebody I met not too long ago into the program. Welcome, Sandy. Thank you very much, Tori. I really appreciate talking to you here. Well, we uh, if I remember correctly, um, I met you and your husband, Bill, in Shippensburg at uh, the Thought Lot and their annual event, and uh, we got to know each other a little bit, and um, we yep. did a book trade, if I remember correctly. <laughs> yes, we did. Yes, we did. And I certainly enjoyed your book intensely because I am also writing about the music world, and you're a little more direct than I am, but it's certainly part of the part of that world that is so hard for me anyway to describe and and so it's it was great to read how your book worked with that, worked with the elements of describing the sound of music, and that's it's always difficult for me, but I keep working at it so. Well, that's cool, and it's something I'm definitely going to be asking about as we go. Um, Special risk. This is interesting. Now, we might think that the world of insurance fraud and investigation might seem a little mundane, but you certainly made it different. Uh, Tell us a little about the story and uh, Valerie, our, our heroine. Well, I should probably tell you, first of all, that special risk is an insurance term. And it refers to um, coverage for a musical instrument that is used outside the home. And so that's where the title came from because Valerie, who is Valerie Sloan, who is a uh, Japanese-American insurance investigator who has just come into a small uh, company, uh, is looking for a missing guitar and one that uh, would have been covered by the special risk clause in an insurance policy. Mm-hmm. Now she and, she was yeah. her background is that she was working for a huge insurance corporation for maybe close to 15 20 years and then her she was working toward the end with a specific partner and he was summarily dismissed from the company and shortly after that so was she. So she was available. He started his own business, and she was available to work for him. So this this case came to them, and because of her music background, her parents worked for the Philadelphia Orchestra. Because of her music background, her essentially boss thought it would be great if she worked on this case looking for a missing guitar. 
Mm-hmm. And it's interesting too that Valerie was a, was a violin player, so she had a little bit of uh, that in her. But it seems like she sort of put that down. There's a lot about Valerie that um, was really well drawn. Um, one thing I have to ask to begin with is how much of Valerie could be you? Do you think? I would say the big thing about Valerie that's like me is that she is slow to warm up to people and mm-hmm. she can seem very stiff from the outside. I think I notice anyway. that. Yeah. <laughs> I see myself often. Yeah. That's but the hardest thing. That, Cause it's like, there's not a, there's, there's not a lot of other things about her that are like me. I don't think, um, you know, other people might be able to point out things, but I really tried to keep her separate from me very much. Mm-hmm. That was the hardest thing for me was to disassociate myself from my characters. And right. I think right. bits of me show up whether I want it or not. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. And I'm sure. And like I say, from my perspective, this is how I tried to write it. What other people mm-hmm. think might be me, really <laughs> not so much. <laughs> so, um, I, I found it interesting. I spoke to a, a book club a while back and one of the things that they were surprised at was how much backstory I knew about Valerie that had absolutely nothing to do with me but was a whole other life that I had created for her behind this story Mm -hmm. and how much was it like um, were there other people that you drew upon um, bits of other people or that you knew that, that, that sort of made Valerie the person she is that's that's always the case with every character I write. I think I take elements from different people. Um, she was quite complex, I thought. Um, on the outside, she may seem like a little standoffish and a little stiff, but she had mm-hmm. a lot going on inside. And and the whole issue of her her personal history and not being well-versed in the Japanese world. It's one of the reasons I created her that way was to, to show that if you don't have a good idea of where you've come from, it is really hard for you to move forward in life. One of the big mm-hmm. things I tried to do with her was show her breaking out of that stiffness and coming to realize that you've got to work with the rest of the world. Now, that's a sort of an underlying theme there, but it's it was one that I was very interested in in developing in this book. Yeah, and uh, one of the things that uh, was really um, is interesting about her is um, being that she's Japanese American, we see some of the issues, we see it with, with her family. Um, now, as you know, um, Searching for Roy Buchanan, my book, and in many of my books in, are, are set in Japan, and have Japanese characters. Do you have a perspective with regards to Japan, say its culture and customs? It comes from research for me. I've never been able to visit Japan. Uh, Actually don't, don't see that in my future either, seeing how how things are going right now. But Mm -hmm. uh, what I, what I pulled on was specifically from a book called uh, Tokyo Vice by a gentleman mm-hmm. by the name of Jake Edelstein, who is a, a, a uh, journalist who lives in Japan and has been there for many years. And it, mm-hmm. the book has to do with his experiences as a, as a journalist and working among the, the Yakuza and how he had to interact with them. And so a lot of 
a lot of my information comes from that book. A lot of my, my background information comes from that book. And also I still follow him on Twitter. So, you know, just to keep up with him and see where he is. For a while, he had to come back to the United States because the Yakuza was so unhappy with him. Um, spilling some of their secrets in this book. But he apparently, well, definitely has gone back. That is something that I was very intrigued about. And it's interesting because I have drawn myself, I have not been to Japan. I definitely will go one day. Um, Mm -hmm. I had to draw on a number of elements of history because I was always into that and I drew on uh, Japanese pop culture. And it was interesting you mentioned a book. Um, One book that was very interesting to me was a book by a fellow named T.R. Reed. It's called Confucius Lives Next Door. Mm-hmm. And it was about him and his family. This came out about 20 years ago. It was about him and his family living in Japan for a number of years and how his he, his wife, and his children all adapted to a very different way of life. And yet at the same time, there's a certain Westernness and there's a certain adaptivity that the Japanese people mm-hmm. have. And I was trying – I'm trying to do that in my own writing to – and, and – I have a Japanese-American friend who's very close, and she reminds me a little of Valerie in that she can be a little standoffish too. And yeah, yeah and she, yeah. but she will also say things like, "Well, you have to not." She said basically, "You have to not make them seem like a bunch of Americans living in Japan." Yeah, yeah, it's pretty, and it's like right to the point. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. Getting I like along with. Yeah, and getting along with um, Valerie and the insurance background now, I need to sort of put that in there as well now. Is there a connection there as well into the insurance business? Um, How do you have that? Because you certainly, like I say, you you provided a lot of detail about how the business works. Well, I had talked to insurance agents. I'd, of course, done some research online and and, uh, in some of the paperwork I received from insurance companies that would Mm – Help me do the research. Uh, I, I don't know specifically because I don't have, I've never worked for an insurance agency myself, but I certainly know people who do. That's the first thing. I, we all certainly in one way or another work with insurance companies in our daily lives. That's another thing. Uh, but also for a time in my life, I, I was in a clerical situation for an extended period of time and work my way up the ladder the way I picture Valerie would have worked her way up the ladder. And so when you say, this can actually go back to one of your earlier questions, if, if uh, anything about her is like me, maybe that's another, another item that you could add to that list, that she was trying to work her way up to a higher level and she was in the background on this story. She was thrilled to be at the level she was when she got mm-hmm. let go. So, you know, it was it was hard for her to deal with the fact that suddenly she had no job. Mm-hmm. And interesting, too, is um, sort of like the setting, because I used to work in the Chester, Delaware County area, Philadelphia, during yeah. parts of my radio yeah. career, different times. And um, it's descriptive, it's intimate, uh, some of the, the places. It's like having worked there and been in and out of that area for a number of years, I knew where I was pretty much every time we changed a setting. And mm-hmm. 
Was that easy to put to paper for you? Easier than I expected. I've okay. been, I've, I never lived in the Philadelphia area, but I certainly have visited there a number of times for various reasons. And I really love it in that area. And that's one of the mm-hmm. reasons I wanted to write about it. Um, when it came down to this street, that street, how far it was, then we can thank Google Maps for that, I think, because <laughs> I got a lot of specific details from them. But, you know, when it comes to the feel of the area, what it looked like, now, yes, I put in some imaginary houses and locations. I do that in most of what I write. But Mm -hmm. really, I I have been to these places. I know what they look like. I know what it should feel like to the reader. I hope it came across well. And it sounds like you're not the first uh, Philadelphia knowledgeable person to tell me that it seems seems pretty clear to them that it's it is Philadelphia it's the Philadelphia area it's not just Philadelphia because it's it's the surrounding area um a lot mm-hmm. in Chester County Delaware County so you know it's there's there's some rich um areas there to describe they're just mm-hmm. it's a beautiful area yeah, it is. And it's like um, the suburban areas outside Philly, when you think about Chester and Delaware counties and maybe Bucks County a little bit, too, uh, there's there is uh, a lot of area that is uh, that's still kind of unspoiled. And that's it's kind of cool that way. And, you know, uh, the different you know, like some of the farms, you know, like the horse farms and stuff in certain areas yeah. and yeah. that sort of thing. And and then, you know, in the city of Philadelphia, of course, the architecture is is such a such yeah. a neat thing driving into the city and and trying to navigate some of those narrow streets and stuff like I've had to do and yeah. it's um it has its own attitude it has its own aura so to speak yeah it does it does it's a gorgeous city and some of the characters like um that brings me to um I I love Rocky the driver <laughs> uh I, I, this Rocky this is Hmm? Rocky was a little scary to write. She she threatened to take over the book for a while. And and I was just wondering, did you set her out to be the polar opposite of Valerie because they are such an odd couple and yet that kind of works? Yes, I actually did. I I wanted a character that would be completely different than Valerie. I wanted to see them um, interact with each other. I wanted to see what would happen, essentially, with two people who are so different having to work together and especially that closely and what was she like i mean she strikes me as a very she's 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 sort of the streetwise counterpoint Mm -hmm. to valerie's sort Mm -hmm. of book smart counterpoint um Mm -hmm. what i mean i think she would be pretty She'd be pretty familiar to, mo- to to some folks in Philly. What was um, how would you describe her though? What would you really say is like? It's like this is this is my uh, friend Rocky. How would you describe her? <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, my friend Rocky. My friend Rocky is a very friendly and outgoing person, um, and she definitely. I wouldn't say this if she was with me, but because. You know, I'd try to be nice about this, but um, she really is a very sort of in-your-face kind of person, and there's a, there are reasons for that. And she, and she isn't 
I didn't go into that part of the story with her. She's she has had her own losses and her own um, misadventures, let's say, and and so she is the way she is for specific reasons, but it works well against Valerie. And the thing too is like Rocky sort of street toughness just sort of yeah. uh it, it it sort of rubs off on Valerie but she has her own inner you know her own inner strength and it she's it's very like strong. They, yeah she's a very strong and there's, I liked the, I liked the friction. I rather enjoyed it because it was like, mm-hmm. you knew that Rocky was somebody that kind of warmed up to Valerie and was like, you know, she would do anything for you. But it also seemed like she was tweaking Valerie a little bit. <laughs> oh, absolutely, absolutely, as is her way. Um, one of the things <laughs> I, I like about Valerie's that I, or about the, the uh, friction between them is, it's also a have and have not situation in a way. Um, Rocky comes from a less affluent background than Valerie. And I think there are many times that that it's, again, it's not on the surface, but there are ways that they deal with things that I think are, are reflective of that. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting to see how that relationship kind of unfolded and how the two sort of, it's like, okay, we're not just coworkers, you know, they sort of became a little bit better friends, which was kind of nice to see. Yeah, yeah. And it's one of the ways in which they both changed a little bit. Mm-hmm. Now, it brings us to uh, the, the interesting, another of the interesting characters, Ruben. Here's a guy. Oh, yeah. This is, this is the focus of the problem. <laughs> it's like, here's this dude living out his rock and roll dream, and yet at the same time, I think a lot of us would probably, and having been in a band, it's kind of like, oh, he went straight. <laughs> <laughs> he was the acquirer as it were. He, he yeah. believed in collecting everything he could get his hands on and that he loved annoying his bandmates and the guitar was a big part of that. Mm-hmm. Well, there's always that one guy in the band. <laughs> yeah, uh, absolutely. Absolutely. I know. <laughs> and, and then so, so his band, now here's this band that had like a one hit, kind of a one hit wonder sort of thing. Yeah. And yep. they're still out there and it's like, where did Ruben get this? I mean, we don't want to give it all away here, but, you know, Ruben is going out, you know, they're playing like weddings or they're playing this thing down in New Jersey or something like that. And right. what, what is Ruben's, what really drives him? Do you think it isn't, doesn't just seem to be the music. He wants attention for himself. He he mm-hmm. is very 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 self-centered and really wants people to think that he's better than everybody else in the band, even though he's not. Mm-hmm. But he doesn't he doesn't see it that way. He he thinks that he is he should be the front man and he's not. So. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's sort of without giving all of it away. It's it's a thing of like. It's really interesting when you kind of you can kind of tell who's who's involved in this little thing, and this is obviously his guitar. And but there's another thing too. We have to bring that in in a moment here. But I love some of the other uh, characters that went along with it on this trip. You've got um, Valerie seeks out Mark, the music guy. You've got. And the music shops are full of interesting people. There are people that that know their stuff, and then there's guys like Bick who didn't really seem to know much of anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Now, did you run into now, – now, obviously, your husband's a musician, so you had to have run into a yes. few of these fellows. Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. This this book actually is dedicated to my husband because he was um, – the, the actual start of this book came from him. He had gone to a guitar show and saw this rather expensive guitar, and it was mm-hmm. a, uh, a burst, uh, uh, and he he really – he took pictures of it and brought them home. And, you know, I looked at this guitar and I thought, um, who would pay the money for this? Who would mm-hmm. actually spend so much money for a guitar? And certainly, why would they bring it to a guitar show where it's, there are so many other guitars and people are really looking for deals? They're not looking for expensive guitars at the guitar shows generally. And so right. we laughed about it, forgot about it, sort of. But it kept coming up in conversation. And that's when I started to put things together. We went, he took me to one of the guitar shows so I could see what it was like and mm-hmm. uh, found out a little more about the Les Paul. And, and uh, it was just a fascinating journey for me because I have very little, I have some music background, but very little compared to him. And so mm-hmm. it was a constant, he had to constantly teach me everything. So, but it was quite well, a quite a trip well and that's the thing it's like um the it it was intriguing for me that the the scenes of like the you know here's this museum piece guitar that you know that that he's he's taking it to a show and it's like i i don't do i mean my gear crawling generally isn't at shows but i know what those are like and it's 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 interesting to see um guitars that you know, you would, and you know, it's like you would love. Like, there's certain kind. There's a couple of them that I would love to have. I used to own a Les Paul, not one of the really super expensive ones, but right. I did have one for a while. And yeah. they are just, uh, they are a piece all their own. And each one is a little. Every every guitar is a little different based on the workmanship and right. just the feel of it. Right. And uh, I would think the same thing. I would look at look on the walls of some shops, and I would like. I'm thinking of a particular guitar store, in fact. And I, and I just look at the huge dollar figures, and it's like, these are guitars that, yeah, you definitely wouldn't put these. You would not take these to a festival. You would not take these on stage. Exactly. And, um, and go ahead. Our job was to figure out why on earth he would have done that, and what he would have expected out of this. And the fact mm-hmm. that uh, you, from Ruben, you know, from his background, um, it made sense that he was looking for a payout of some sort, <laughs> and, and wanted it. And his his patience level was next to totally missing. So he he um, <laughs> people to pay him right away for it. He he had no concept of what it was he was doing at this stuff at this uh, um, guitar show. So he. Mm-hmm you know, made a fool of himself and met some of the people along the way that I met at some of the shows too. That, that, well, uh, you, you get to see, you get to see, <laughs> you get to see many sides of people at conventions and shows and stuff like oh, yeah. that. And, and Absolutely. it's always more, it's like more characters. Oh, because when I go to shows, when I, or when I just go out, I just, I'm always people watching because you don't know yeah. who you're going to meet yep. and you find some really cool people and you find yeah. some really weird ones. And, uh, yeah. if, if they, and if they're stranger Sometimes than the you, then you know, they're interesting. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. I get your point. 
Absolutely. Well, it is really cool, though, how you did build this story and you were able to um, using using your husband's knowledge and using all these things, you were starting to put you put the settings quite well. Um, one thing that was interesting, I need to kind of come back to this without getting too much to it. Uh, we talked about Valerie and her dealing with her lineage, and mm-hmm. again, we like we have her interactions like with Rocky, with Reuben, with her boss, and different people. It, and especially with her father, there is that that the the tenseness. You brought a lot of gravity to that relationship, and I wondered where in your research that came from, or if that was if if there was ever anything personal with that, because I thought there was there was right. I felt there was the right amount because it's like I've had that. I've had it with my parents at different times, and yeah. there is just that. There's that heat. And yet at the same time, you still love each other. Yes, yes. And I, you know, I've had those moments too with my family. I've seen other people go through it with their families. I think it's a universal to say that most people sooner or later have some kind of friction with a family member. And if things are as they should be, that hopefully is overridden by the love you have for them. And that's, mm-hmm. that is another thing. Um, Valerie cared incredibly for her father, was a little dismayed to find out that early in the book that he's extremely in debt. And it puts extra pressure on her to find a job and help out. And because her father is ostensibly retired and not being paid for the gigs he plays as a violinist. So, you know, he's, he's playing with friends for the kicks and not really, but her father was never focused on money. That's his backstory. Of course, he wasn't focused Mm -hmm. on money. And so for her, it's more of an issue. One of the other things I wanted to talk about a little bit is her uh, violin interest and capabilities. Um, I'm in the process now of working on a short story about her background and it's, it, I hope to explore the fact that although her parents were both incredibly good violinists, she was raised with it, but like many of us, just didn't have the skill and Mm -hmm. just couldn't stay with it enough to make it work for her as a career. And so she did what she thought was the second best thing, which was she repairs and sets up and, you know, buys and sells violins uh, Mm -hmm. for people. And And that's where all that came from. And that was that was really interesting, and I I, I liked that she had she could do that with her hands because that I mean being a luthier as a guitarist for guitars or whatever, uh, a very right. needed very needed thing. And there, there's yeah. uh, fewer and fewer really talented ones. Uh, a great one from the Boston area, Jim Moradian, just passed away about a couple of years ago, and I was amazed at how many people I knew when I lived in Boston knew who he was and knew what he was all about. And I mean, it was people from all of, and he was a very talented bass player himself. He played with Ronnie Earl and the broadcasters near the end of his career. Mm -hmm. And um, everybody just had the most utmost love and respect for the guy. I never got to meet him. I wished I had, but uh, that's a very cool thing. And I'd be very interested in what Valerie does. That's the backstories are always fun too. Yeah, yeah, I enjoy that. I I have one about Rocky that's floating around at the moment. And I'll uh, oh wow. Well, 
let's just say that's floating around and I'm working on the one for Valerie now. So, and I'll be doing one for their boss, Harry in the future too. I have, uh, have a story I want to tell about him. So, um, but things like that are going on as well as the the next book. So we'll get to that in a minute, but um, yeah, Valerie, Valerie's life was not ideal, ideal in some ways, not ideal in others. I mean, she lost her mother at an early age, and, and so that affected her immensely and maybe toughened her up in a way that was maybe not as good for her as, as it could have been. But mm-hmm. it does underscore the whole I, I should not be Japanese aspect of her, of Valerie's mm-hmm. life. And, and, and it's really interesting. Why and how you brought her in, you you got her involved as the story unfolded, even though she's gone. And I really found that intriguing. And the um, other interesting character, Min, I really liked him. I yeah. found him yeah. to be very, he was fascinating in his own way. And again, we don't want to give it all away, but there was this, you, you put this right. lovely connection with that guy, that guy and, and Valerie's mom. Right, right. Men and how did Min uh, come in? Where Where did he come in? Um, I'm not quite sure where he actually generated from, except um, I I was thinking about someone who would understand the internment camp situation to a certain degree. Mm-hmm. And without Valerie's mother being there to, to talk about it and, and talk about her memories, I needed someone else to be able to do that. And that's where men came in. And, and because a lot of the people, you know, Valerie's family separated from the Japanese side uh, many years earlier. And so it was, it was very hard for her to, to get a sense of what that must have been like, except until she talked to men and, mm-hmm. and realized uh, the, that for a child being in an internment camp may have been, I don't want to make light of it, but it may have been more of an adventure for them than a hardship. And yet it was a hardship, a serious hardship. And so, and, you know, yeah. they gave her some inside information there. Mm-hmm. And I was particularly intrigued by the use of the, of the Yakuza. Um, there's, uh, I've never really touched on that in my writing because I haven't done much research with that. What I found uh, interesting about them was what they were doing in the Philly area. Did you find through your research and through uh, this, uh, you know, through uh, the writing of um, this fellow here, Mr. Edelman, um, do they have a foothold in the U.S. or is there some sort of influence they exert here? I wouldn't say that that uh, Mr. Edelstein would have said that. However, in his book, he left me under the impression that they were able to come in, the members of the Yakuza were actually able to come and go into the United States. Now, this, keep in mind, this, his book was written around 2012, but they were able to mm-hmm. come and go um, somewhat freely to the United States. And I, I was a little taken aback by that when I originally read it and then later used it, what I feel is to my advantage, thinking that... You know, the Yakuza are an interesting organization in that they are, yes, they are terrible people in many ways, but they also protect. They're protectors. And it's an Mm -hmm. interesting dichotomy that they live with. 
and that they present to people. Yeah, yeah, you owe them your lives and you are <laughs> you are bound by that. But when things go bad, they're there to protect you too in some mm-hmm. ways. Now, in the United States, I was thinking that during the time of the internment camps, it's possible that they may have had a presence in some way and kept things mm-hmm. from getting out of hand. Now, this is just my total speculation. I have no idea. <laughs> but this is how I saw it, that, that they may have been part of the internment camp scene and come east with that mm-hmm. and been able to travel from New York, Philadelphia, Baltimore, and create their gangs. Now, I talk about it as these are not the same names that they use in Japan, uh, right. but they create their own. And I, I made sort of cartoonish names out of that. But it, I was trying to make a point that, that they could very well exist, just not as we think they might exist in Japan. Mm-hmm. There are certainly well, Korean gangs. There are certainly um, Chinese gangs that exist, Vietnamese gangs that exist. So, you know, I, I think it's quite possible. And with uh, what little I do know is that a number of Yakuza are actually ethnic Koreans. And because the way that they were, they are treated in Japan, because they, they undergo a great deal of discrimination, quite often they're discriminated against in terms yeah. of work. And it was not unusual for an ethnic Korean to join a gang because you know, there was risk, but there was at least there would be work. There would be something. Yeah. And yeah. that seemed to be the turn for a lot of it. And the gangs in themselves, I mean, there are different splits in the different the different groups and that sort of thing. And it it is very much its own organization, but it's also yeah. you can see reflections of organized crime, say the mafia or others. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, I have a question for you, Sandy, with regards to characters. I know we've talked a little bit about the arrival of them and the method of creating. Is there any way that you sort of map them out to keep track of them? Like, uh, that's something I do is I, when, I, when I start to create characters, I just sort of start doing little profiles of them before I even write. Do you do anything like that? Yes, I do. I do profiles of them. Um, I, also, I also track them on a calendar to, to make sure that they are where they need to be at a certain day or time. And okay. so that, that helps me keep everything straight. That's the, the profile helps me remember what eye color they had. <laughs> and the, ca- mm-hmm. the uh, calendar helps me figure out, well, they were at home here, but they need to be across town there. So that's how I handled that. Oh, that's cool. That's that's very cool. That's uh, sort of like the timeline of okay, where are they going to be? And that's like yeah. that's like part of your your treatment, that kind of thing. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Uh, All right. Well, my guest here on uh, the BookSpeak Network today is Sandy Nork. She is the author of Special Risk. It is the first book of the Risk series. And uh, I want to ask about you now, Sandy. We got the chance to talk, as I said last year, a little bit. Um, You've listed uh, a number of jobs. Uh, You worked as a librarian (laughs) and uh, I I see so many different uh, things here. Let's first begin with your growing up years and like, let's, because that's always so pivotal. Tell us about where you came from? I actually come from uh, an area just south of York, Pennsylvania, uh, called Dallastown. I I grew up there, uh, spent my formative years there, spent a lot of time on my grandparents' farm, 
uh, spent a lot of time reading. And by the mm-hmm. time I was, I'd, I'd say I actually started writing about 10 or so, but by 12, I had, uh, I actually submitted a uh, slogan to a radio station and, and got a dollar for it. So it was my first experience with paid to write. <laughs> Well, that, you know, that's the thing. It's like it seems like we do that. We have we make up stories or we come up with ideas and that sort of thing. Right. Um, right. In terms of the reading, uh, what spurred your interest? Uh, what was the kind of things you were going for as a young person? What What did you? Oh, what attracted I, you? I, I was all about the mysteries, all the mysteries that that kids read. Then the Dana, well, I I was specifically interested in the Dana Girls, who were written by Carolyn Keene, the same woman that wrote the Nancy Drew series and okay. uh, or series of people. Actually, I think that may have been a, a pseudonym for the people who wrote the Nancy Drew series. Um, the Dana Girls were about a pair of sisters. I always wanted a sister, but of course I had a brother, and. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> Um, and how they would do some sleuthing along the way. They were high school students. I was still in grade school, but eh, didn't matter. Uh, but of course, I also read the, the Hardy Boys and the Bobsy Twins and the Cherry Ames books and the, all those stuff that, uh, that we read then. But then later, of course, I graduated to people like uh, Sherlock Holmes and Agatha Christie and, and, uh, and eventually, well, Somewhere along the way, I got hooked on Stephen King, and I spent a lot of years mm. reading Stephen King, who, while I'm not a horror writer, I think has a lot to study in his ha- handling of characters and, and location. Mm-hmm. And it was also my first exposure to the idea, I, or at least one of many exposures, to the idea that you can take those characters, and while you're focusing on one set of characters in one book, you can be focusing on another set of characters that are related to the first set in a different book. So mm-hmm. I, I find that fascinating that you, you end up peopling your own town perhaps, or your own region with these different circles of characters that know each other. And it's, it's interesting too, to be able to uh, create your sort of, you're creating. And I think we all do this when we're writing fiction, we're creating our own world, but unless it's science fiction or fantasy or something, we're creating the world right here. It's just kind yeah. of like our eyes looking out at it. Yeah. And I, I tend to want to make that as accurate to the area as possible, and yet you can't, in in my head, I can't keep it so close that it's exact. I have to, I still have to have those fictional things, that fictional elements in places that... Uh, so, you know, I should have one of those claimers that says, you know, I may have set this in Philadelphia, but no, not exactly. <laughs> it's not exactly the Philadelphia you know. <laughs> That's cool. And um, was there any, like, defining moment for you that said, I'm going to write, I'm going to do my own thing? Was there? Did you ever have one of those moments where, you know, the light went on and said, all right, I'm going to do it? It wasn't so much that as the light that came on and said, I can't not do it. I think that Ah. happened. It happened after I left college, strangely. I had been writing all the way until I went to college. I had some very bad writing experiences in college and uh, uh, some bad confrontations with some some instructors um, left college. And it took me, I'd say, another five to seven years to finally go, I can't go on pretending that I don't want to write. 
Mm-hmm. And after that, it was pretty much a constant thing. And, and so mm-hmm. a constant desire to write, a constant attempt to write, and, and to try. I, I'm, I'm not as good at trying to get published. I think that's my biggest flaw but uh, when it comes to writing. But um, I, I just, I couldn't not write. Right. And, and where did you go to school? <laughs> um, I'm laughing because there have been so many. <laughs> oh, okay. I've been to I've been to a number of colleges. Um, my my grade school, high school years were all in Dallas Town. But once I left there, um, I spent some time at Dickinson College, Penn State, uh, York College. I ended up getting my bachelor's of uh, of, of arts in English at York College. Um, okay. But it, it was after all. Oh, I went to Millersville for a while. Um, go gosh, I'm, I'm telling you, I tried, I tested out everybody in the area. Let's put it that way. So, and it took well, me a and, very long time because mm-hmm. by that time well, I was working, and I, you know. Mm-hmm. Now there was the thing. You worked as a librarian, and I mean, yes. that must have been cool because it's like you have access to you know, books of every kind, but you must also have gotten a real, you know, like you've got your finger on the pulse of what are readers looking for? What do they want? Right. Yeah. At the time. Yeah, I, I did. I, um, over 20 years in the library world, I, um, Mm -hmm. I should have done it right away out of, out of high school. I think, um, I think I sort of knew all along. That's what I should be doing. But I tried all these other things trying to, you know, I, I worked for traditional companies doing clerical things just to try to keep myself going. And, and I don't know, it just it wasn't, it wasn't my best choice necessarily to, to do all those other things, but I sure learned a lot. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so it wasn't a bad thing, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was. You were just saying about the difficulty of getting published, and well, don't don't we know that um, the yeah, decision yeah. to self-publish was it was it more yeah. just an expedient, or was it uh, what did it what did uh, how how did it just decide that this was the best run for you? Well, I've been I've been working on this book for a long time, and I've sent it out in various forms to people over the years, and it wasn't ready, wasn't ready, wasn't ready for a long time. When I got close mm-hmm. to the point of being ready, I suddenly got set up with the idea that I was going to be sending out a manuscript that was going to take another six months until someone looked at it and mm-hmm. sent sent me a notification saying, no, we're not interested. <laughs> and so yep. I just decided, you know, it's expedient. You're expedient to just go ahead and, and attempt this myself. And, and it turned out, I think, very well. I'm very pleased. I had a great cover designer, I had, and she also did my interior. I had a great professional editor take a look at this. And, and in addition to some other readers that I had, I just thought that, uh, that this experience was very good for me. And that was the, that's the main thing that, that I have learned, and I've had – the luck of having a very good cover artist on my own. Yeah. And the other thing too, as I have, I say to every person up and down is you need a professional editor. You need yes. you really, if, if yes. you don't have one through your own publishing imprint, get that unbiased pair of eyes that is going to rip it up because they're going to see so many yeah. things you don't. There is, there is 
no money better spent on a book than a professional editor, I think. And right. I had, I had, uh, I specifically chose someone who had a background in music publication, mm-hmm. who had worked for many years for a, mag- a music magazine, and she was extremely helpful. And I and was willing to go through the book more than once for me. I mean, now you know, I just say it was it was just worth it to me to do this. I didn't feel like it was ready to to publish until after that. But once I took her advice and got the manuscript to a point that I felt was ready, then I also was not ready to wait for those uh, those letters coming back saying, nope, not for us. (laughs) But I'm so grateful, so grateful Mm -hmm. to the editor. She, She was wonderful. She knew that this was my first self-publication and she just did a great job and with working with me she was uh, very patient same thing with my designer my designer was very patient too i thought and that's the thing you've got you've got a it's a very simple cover and yet it conveys exactly what you need and it's like it just evokes enough of the you know that that eye it's the eye-catching thing the guitar the city right and and it, 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 there's no reason that it shouldn't. It, it, I'm, I'm sure that you see that when you when you do a book signing or you do an event, somebody comes along and you, they don't know who you are, but you watch their eyes and you see what they do, and yeah. they're like, they're looking. <laughs> yep. yep. It's they're pretty cool when that, that happens. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's it's really special to me to have such a beautiful cover on it. I I'm very proud of this book. So. Mm-hmm. Now, without giving any way trade secrets, um, this is – being a self-published author, this is really mm-hmm. your business now uh, in terms yeah. of you know promoting the book, doing interviews like this one, that kind of thing. Um, yeah. How do you – do you use it, do it as a small business? How, what, how do you – do you have any kind of business model to operate off of? It's um, – I, I, am, I am a business um, – I don't know how much more I can say than that other than, you know, a a single owner business. I'm not really looking to publish anybody else's work at this time. I'm just trying to get my own works out there and and get people interested in reading them. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure I'm answering your question. That's fine. No, I mean okay. it's it's I'm I'm intrigued by it because more and more I've run into friends. I've made friends with people that are doing exactly what you're doing. They're making it a business and they're doing all the work. They're doing all of their yeah. own promotion pretty much uh right. unless they have the wherewithal to hire somebody to do it for them and they're doing you know, they set up their bookings and they decide right. the covers and go to the events and um it's it's very interesting. Get, yeah, you're not mm-hmm. always going to get it's the hardest thing I think is to get uh people outside like in, in this area it's not bad. People are interested in what I'm doing because I live here. But once mm-hmm. you get outside this area it's much harder to get people's interest and attention. There's so much out there that's competing with you that it, it is a difficult thing promotional part. But I also knew that going into this, so it's no surprise, and I just have to keep working at it. It doesn't come natural to me, I will say. 
Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting for me because it's like being in broadcasting. You have to be kind of engaging, and I confess to away from a microphone, I'm not the most engaging person. And I had to really draw on my experience of doing the occasional public appearance or being on stage to just be like, okay, I need to connect, but I need to. You, you walk that line of don't be too. You don't want to be too pushy and you don't want to be like Rocky and get in your face. You want to just be like, right. you hope that right. you can draw the potential buyer in, the, the reader who's looking for something new. Yeah, yeah. And it, it's helped me a lot to work for libraries for all the years that I did because it forced me. I'm basically an introvert, as they say, from a lot of writers. Mm-hmm. Um, but mm-hmm. when you're working in a library, you have to engage with the public every day. I, I mm-hmm. did spend, I will confess, I did spend a few years as a cataloger. As a cataloger, less so. But you still have to work as a team with your other, you know, cataloging people. On the other hand, I also spent time at, at uh, circulation desks. At re- I spent 10 years in reference. You know, I, I work with reference uh, questions all day long. And so it helped me a lot. Later on, I was also parts of of teaching instruction sessions and also some some public speaking, some introductory things. I also should mention at this point that I've, I'm a member of Penwriters, which has give, given me opportunities over and over to do things for them that allow me to talk to people in the public. So it, it certainly helps, even though, as I say, it doesn't come natural to me. And the promotional part, I can promote the heck out of somebody else. But, you know, the promotional part when it comes to my own work suddenly mm-hmm. sort of fades into this little shrivelly thing. <laughs> so, sure. Well, I know sure it does, it does happen. And it's, it's sort of, it, sometimes you feel it and sometimes you don't, it's, it's not that yeah, unusual. Um, tell us a little about pen writers. Uh, what, what tell us about the organization, how you got in on it. Oh, I've, hmm, how did I get in on it? Hmm. Pen writers is an organization for writers run by writers who mm-hmm. are there to support writers. They are they started out as a Pennsylvania organization, but they have an element that is, you know, they had members that moved out of state, that kind of thing, but didn't want to lose the connection. So they have members all over the country, for sure. Uh, maybe even internationally. I'm, I'm not positive about that at this point. But mm-hmm. um, they are fantastic. They are um, inexpensive to join, but you need to be, I think, a pretty serious writer in order to get the maximum out of it. They Mm -hmm. offer one conference a year. This one's coming up in May, uh, the next one, and it'll be in Lancaster. They usually bounce back and forth between Lancaster and Pittsburgh. So Mm -hmm. um, this year it happens to be in Lancaster, and they are just a wonderful organization. They are also the link, my original link to a critique group which was really instrumental in helping me develop special risk. The the Mm -hmm. comments and and, uh, background uh, help I got from those members, the critique group members too, or it's just wonderful. It's a, it's writers talking to other writers and that's Mm. so helpful. You get to see, when you go to the conference, you get to see, all the levels that writing can be, and you get to learn so much. The sessions are just incredible. 
Um, I, I've always enjoyed going to their – I don't get to go every year, but I have always enjoyed going to their conferences when I do go. Mm. Very cool. Well, in the time we have left, uh, you've alluded a little bit to what is next for uh, the Risk series. You've got some ideas for Valerie and the gang. Uh, but tell us oh, yeah. about the new book that's coming out. There's like uh, Book two is, is a little bit different. Book two is a little different and yet more of the same. Um, we are working with insurance people. And so the next book is, a, is called Flood Risk. It has to do, actually, with the flood of 2010 in Nashville. Nashville, who's been in the news this week for a tornado. Yep. Um, but this, is, this harks back to the 2010 days, and um, this is another musical instrument. This time it'll be a mandolin that, that uh, they're looking for. However, as always, there's other stories along the way. And, you know, we're still in the large arc of Valerie trying to figure out her own history and her own background and her own feelings about being half Japanese. So mm -hmm. it's, it's a, it's a long journey. She's uh, taking the next step there though. And the, the book will take place uh, less than a year after the first one. So, okay. but it'll be many of the same characters will be there. So you'll recognize a lot of them and, it's it's going to be it's a fun so far it's been fun to work on I'm I'm looking forward to getting it finished it's I'm still we're still in the drafting mode here but uh, I'm looking forward to getting it finished. Okay, and where can we get Special Risk, and where can we find out more about you? The easiest thing to do is go to my website sandynork.com. And there's a whole list of places you can get it. Um, there are different right now. There are different uh, you can get it on on uh, Kindle or or Nook or all of the the different electronic versions. You can get a paperback if you go. There are a couple local stores that you can get it. Um, the Mechanicsburg Mystery Bookshop has it, and also. Um, the uh, cupboard maker books in Enola has it. So, you know, either, either of those places, or you can order it direct from me if you would like to, too. So it's, it's not a problem. You just need to go to the website and take a look at the special risk page and all its attendant little um, areas there. By the way, if any of your listeners are part of a book club, I have book club questions listed, too, on my website for special risk. All right. That's fantastic. Well, Sandy, this has been great. Thank you so much. And, uh, well, uh, whenever you get to the Harrisburg area or uh, if you're around it, we've got uh, to have coffee, as uh, Bill was saying, and I, I would love to do that again. Love to see you again. And let me give you a plug then for – I post to today's coffee on my <laughs> – Yes, I saw that. <laughs> I love it when you and do that. So it's it's uh it's it's mostly my little toys and my my coffee, but <laughs> but I do occasionally have books on there too. Yes, I noticed that the hash it's hashtag today's coffee, and uh, yes. I I'm gathering some other folks are doing that too, but it's uh, that's very cool. Oh, yeah. All right, well, Sandy, thank you so much. I really appreciate this. Thank you so much for having me. This has been great. Thank you. All right. Our guest has been Sandy Nork, author of Special Risk, which, again, you can find at sandynork.com and elsewhere. I'm Tori Gates, your host of the Brown Posey Press Show and author of the current release, Searching for Roy Buchanan. This is the Book Speak Network. 
Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.